We are going to be looking uh, once again at Luke's Gospel today. Uh, we are working our way slowly but surely from beginning to end uh, in Luke's account of the uh, life and ministry of Jesus while he was on earth. Now we're going to get to uh, Luke's Gospel in a little while, uh, but I want to at least start by alerting you to something of a dynamic that takes place pretty much every Sunday in churches all over the world. James? Uh, the brother of Jesus, uh, he alludes to it in James 1.22, where he says, do not merely listen to the word, which is like listening to messages, listening to preaching, uh, listening to the Bible being taught. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. It's like James knew Uh, and he wrote these words uh, about 2,000 years ago, James knew that there'd be like this community and culture where people would gather together and listen, much like we are here today. And because people had listened, they'd feel convicted, they'd feel challenged about stuff going on uh, in their life, and they'd confuse listening and feeling convicted with growth in their faith. People would listen to preach and go, oh, I feel so bad. Uh, and they'd equate guilt and conviction from God to being connected to God. And they'd say stuff like, I feel so close to God because I feel really bad about myself now. Or I just love going to that church because the preaching convicts me every week. And James says, now, that doesn't have a whole lot to do with walking with God. doesn't have a whole lot to do with following Christ. This is just something you're making up. And so he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Don't deceive yourselves into thinking, wow, I'm doing so well here. I mean, I got up reasonably early. Uh, Miraculously, I managed to get the whole family out of the door kind of in time. Uh, I was in the building at least five minutes after the start of the meeting. And unlike last week, I haven't fallen asleep during the preaching yet. And so I'm sure God is looking down on me and he's saying, I'm going to bless you because you are in church right now. James says, this isn't actually how it works. God isn't merely looking for meeting attendance or even listening to the sermon, although don't hear me wrong, that is at least a good start. But he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Maybe you're thinking, well, that would kind of wreck my whole life if I had to, had to actually start doing this stuff. I mean, isn't it enough just to attend church? Isn't it enough that I'm physically present in this building right now? Isn't it enough that I'm listening? And James, the brother of Jesus, says, no, you're deceiving yourself. It's like unapplied paint doesn't do a whole lot of good. Simply buying a treadmill doesn't do you any good. Simply joining a gym doesn't do you any good. Simply taking a class on nutrition doesn't do you any good. Application makes all the difference. I just think for a moment what it looks like to the people around us who perhaps don't go to church. They maybe see us getting up early on a Sunday morning, see us uh, getting into the car and heading off to the church meeting, 
and they're observing us and they're thinking, it, it doesn't seem to change a whole lot about their life. Don't seem to do anything differently in the other six days of the week to how we live. They just go to church. And then we say, hey, you ought to come with me and visit my church. And they're going, why on earth would I want to? Why would I want to go to your church? I I do the same kind of things that you do. You do the same kinds of things that I do. There's not a whole lot of difference in the way we live our lives. It doesn't seem to make any practical difference to you. Why would I want to give up my Sunday morning? You're going, oh, because you'll be really challenged and you'll feel closer to God. And James goes, time out. You've got it all wrong. Listening is nothing. Application is everything. You have to actually do something about what you hear. And so here's what you'll find again and again and again and again in the Bible, that hearing God's Word and being convicted by it, being challenged about something in your life, merely serves as a first step towards something different. Serves as a first step towards repentance. That's like you turn from the way you were living and you now do things differently. You don't do that stuff anymore. It's a first step towards repentance and reconciliation. That's like when you sin against someone else and you take the initiative to make things right with that other person. And let's be honest, that's ever so slightly further than a lot of us are often prepared to go. I think if we go anywhere, it simply tends to be towards confession. We're taught that when you go to bed at night, or or, uh, maybe you kneel beside your bed if you're really committed and really spiritual, uh, you, you just kind of tell God directly about all the sins you've committed during the day. Then we've been taught that once you tell God all the sins that you've done, well, once you confess your sins to Him, then God doesn't remember them anymore. He erases them. You've basically emptied out your sin bucket. And then you get to take your empty sin bucket back out into the week and fill it up all over again. I mean, it's pretty awesome, really. Uh, And you can come back at the end of the day and say, oh God, I feel so terrible. You empty out your sin bucket all over again. And God somehow magically forgets all of your sin. So you get to go out and do it all over again. It's like you confess the same stuff again and again again and again and again, over and over and over and over. There's never any real change in you. But the act of confession at least makes you feel better about yourself. God's not after that. God never intended for us to come up with these kind of internal games that we play that kind of make us feel a bit better about ourselves so we can kind of relieve our conscience. What he's after is genuine life change. He's looking for repentance and reconciliation. Now, before we finally get into Luke's gospel, and I'll tell you there's a brilliant example of what I'm talking about in today's passage in Luke 19. Very quickly, I just want to take you to an Old Testament example which kind of sets the scene for the main story we're going to be looking at today. It's found in the book of Numbers. Uh, Just by way of background, God has just delivered uh, the nation of Israel from captivity, from slavery in Egypt. And because they've been slaves for the best part of 400 years, they don't really know anything about how to live in the free world. I mean, being a slave uh, has its drawbacks, but 
on the other hand, it is a bit easier. You just say, yes, master, and that's about it. You you don't have to have any other laws because you don't really have a free society. You're just told what to do and you don't have to think for yourself. And so God gives them a whole bunch of instructions to help their new society run smoothly. And here's one of the things he says. It's found in Numbers 5. going to pick it up in verse 5. Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, any man or woman who wrongs another in any way, could be verbally, could be physically, could be theft, could be any kind of mistreatment, any man or woman who wrongs another in any way, and so is unfaithful to the Lord. Now don't miss this. He says, if you mistreat another person, you have been unfaithful to God. Now, I think we like to kind of separate those things out, don't we? Uh, we, we like to go to church and get on our knees and say, God, me and you, we're, we're cool. I mean, I hate her, but me and you, we're, we're, we're good, right? And God's going, no, 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 no. Uh, if you hate her, me and you are not good. You cannot hate her and love me. We're like, I, I can treat that person terribly, get on my knees and say, God, I'm sorry I treated that person terribly. Are we cool? And we think God says, yeah, we're, we're fine. You, you don't have to do anything to put the situation right. Just tell me about it. Confess to me uh, and everything is fine. But even here in the Old Testament, God says to Moses, make sure everybody knows that if you treat that person badly, then you've effectively treated God himself badly. These two things go together. Any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord is guilty and must confess the sin they've committed. They must make full restitution. There's another R word. We've already had repentance, we've had reconciliation. Here's the third R word. They must make full restitution for the wrong that they have done. In other words, we have to pay back. We have to make up for. We must put things right. doesn't stop with me saying to God, God, I'm so sorry. It was a mistake. Didn't mean to do that thing. God says, no, 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 no. If we're going to keep relationships on this earth going like they're supposed to go, then there must be restitution for the wrong you've done. To which we're like, can we just stop there please? I mean, you've already given me enough challenge for one morning. God says, no, I'm not quite finished yet. He continues, they must make full restitution for the wrong they've done. Add a fifth of the value to it and give it all to the person they've wronged. So, in the Old Testament, here's how a confession played out. Confession starts with me realizing, okay, I've stolen, or I wasn't fair, or I cheated, or I said what I shouldn't say, whatever. And God, I'm I'm so, so sorry. And God's going, I'm glad you're sorry, now we need to make this thing right. Because it's not going to be right with me, unless you make it right with them as well. Can't I just confess to you? It's, it's much simpler that way. No, you need to go and confess to them. But if I confess to them, then I'll need to take some steps to change. Then I'll need to try and put this thing right. God says, yes, you have to pay them back. 
and add 20% on top. You see, there's a system in place. Confession in the Old Testament was associated with restitution, reconciliation, repentance, not going to do that thing again, and I'm going to take active steps to put it right. And it wasn't just between God and us, it was between people and other people. Now, after this law was given, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years go by. And then one day, Jesus arrives on the scene. Jesus shows up. One day, he's walking down the road, and it's so cool when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's like everywhere Jesus goes, there's this crowd following him. So this particular day, he's walking down the street, uh, he's a miracle worker, uh, he's like a rock star at that point, and everybody wants to get close to him, everyone wants to get near him, everyone wants to see what's going to happen next, everyone wants a piece of the action. So he's walking down the street, and there's this guy who wants to see Jesus, but he's too short he can't see over the crowd. Anyone know his name? Zacchaeus. I can hear some whispers. Yes, Zacchaeus. Everyone tell me what Zacchaeus did to get a better view. Climbed a tree. What kind of tree? Sycamore tree. I'm sure there's a song about that, but we, uh, we won't go there. Time doesn't permit. Maybe another week. Now, as well as being short, we also know that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. Now, I don't think there has actually ever been a time where people who collect taxes have been popular. Even in our society, uh, if you work for the Inland Revenue, you probably shouldn't tell people when you first meet them because it's unlikely to win friends. Now, we're an inclusive church. If you're visiting today and you do work for the Revenue, well, you're incredibly welcome. We accept you uh, as you are, but might best just to hold on to that information for a little while. But back in New Testament times, tax collectors were viewed as beneath contempt. I mean, have you noticed how people often complained about Jesus mixing with the sinners and the tax collectors. It's like the sinners didn't even want the tax collectors in their category. Like, I'm a sinner, but at least I'm not a tax collector. That's how badly the tax collectors were viewed. Uh, And when you know a bit of the background, then you can begin to understand why. Because on the whole, the tax collectors were Israelites who had purchased the right from Rome to raise funds for this brutal, oppressive, occupying army who was responsible for the death, the slaughter, the abuse of hundreds of thousands of their own people. And their sole motivation in being a tax collector was to line their own pockets. There really is no cultural equivalent to the wickedness that was a tax collector in Israel. To make matters worse, not only was Zacchaeus a tax collector, we're told in the passage he was a chief tax collector. So in all probability, he would have controlled a whole region, an entire network of other tax collectors, and he would have taken a cut from the profits of all of them. All of which helps to explain why he had to climb a tree to get a better view. I mean, normally speaking, if you're in a crowd and there's some dignitary going past and there's someone short who's trying to get a view, normally you and the rest of the crowd kind of part to enable the smaller person to get to the front of the crowd so they can see what's going on. There is absolutely no way anyone would have let Zacchaeus through to the front of the crowd. I mean, 
you wouldn't want him to get anywhere close to Jesus. Let's pick up the story in Luke 19. Find out what happens when Jesus spots Zacchaeus up in the tree. Verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now, those of us who are Westerners, we're likely to miss the profound significance of this. But the crowd certainly didn't. Verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter. Now, I don't think there's ever an occasion in the Gospels where the crowd started muttering where that was a positive thing. And we see what they're muttering. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. You see, in that time and place, hospitality meant a lot. If someone invited you into their home, they were actually inviting you into their life. To offer hospitality or to accept hospitality was to offer or accept an invitation to real friendship. It was a big deal. And so when Jesus says, I am coming to your house, you can begin to understand something of the crowd shock. He is looking at this person who the crowd thinks is as morally corrupt as it's possible to be, and he doesn't say, this is what the crowd would have been happy to hear, Zacchaeus, if you clean up your life, I'd then be happy to come into your home. Clean up your life, and I'll come into your life. Clean up your life, and then I'll be your friend. Clean up your life, and then I might find it in myself to love you. That's not what he says. He says, I'm taking the initiative to come into your life. I am loving you first. As a result, as we're going to see, Zacchaeus then goes and cleans up his life. Here's how Zacchaeus responds, verse 8, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. It's like, Zacchaeus, what on earth has come over you? Why such generosity all of a sudden? I mean, what's happened? Well, I've been in the presence of Jesus and I'm a changed man. I've got to respond to his love for me. I'm amazed that he would accept someone like me at the cost of his own reputation, that he would reach out to me knowing that it would cause the crowd to turn against him. I mean, it's all pretty overwhelming. If he would do that for me, then how can I not be changed? Why would I not be generous to others in response? Here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, And if I have cheated, just pause there. Anybody who heard this is going, if you cheated? I mean, you're a tax collector. There is no if about it. Of course you're a cheat. I mean, the sinners don't even want to be tarnished with a brush that is you. They don't want to get anywhere close to you. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, then I will pay back four times the amount. Remember that passage we looked at in the Old Testament? It said you need to make proper restitution. You give them what you've taken. Add 20%. Add a fifth on top. Zacchaeus is going, I'm going to confess. 
I'm going to own up to what I've done, and I'm going to make restitution. I'm going to pay back, not a fifth, I'm going to pay back four times the amount. I'm going to pay back 400% on top. Have a listen to Jesus' response. And Jesus said unto him, Zacchaeus, don't get carried away. He continued, thou hast confessed, and it is enoughest that thou hast confessed thy sin to me in private. I made that up. I mean, Russ was there, he knew. That is not in the Bible. But this is what we do, isn't it? We go, well, you, you know what? Me and God, we had this private conversation going on. That's what we say. It's like, just put a lid on this. It's nobody else's business. It's just between me and God. I want you to know something. The God of the Bible says, no, it's between me and you and everybody you have affected. That's who it's between. I mean, that's certainly how Zacchaeus saw it. This isn't between me and God. This is between me and God and everybody else that I've cheated. And now I want to make it right to everyone. Have a listen to Jesus' response. This is what Jesus really said. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus didn't say, no, 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 no. You don't need to start paying people back. You really don't need to go to extremes here. You don't need to start asking people if you've offended them. You certainly don't need to make this public. Jesus says, absolutely that's what you need to do. That's what repentance involves. It's not enough to feel convicted in the moment and to merely confess your sin to me in private. No, genuine repentance leads to genuine life change. Now let me try and be as real as I can with you. The bottom line is this. If you have a secret sin, habit, whatever it is, and you've got caught up in this rhythm of telling God you're sorry, like, I've done it again, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, but there's no change, then you need to understand there is a word for that. And you're probably not going to like this, but you already know what that word is if you are on the receiving end, if you're on the receiving side of it. So let me just flip it around. Here's an example of what I am talking about. Let's imagine for a moment that you own a coffee shop and I'm working for you. Bit of a stretch of the imagination, I know, but let's just play this out. You notice, kind of week after week, there's 200 pounds missing from the till. And so you uh, interview all of the staff, you install kind of secret cameras there as well, and eventually you work out that I was the culprit. I'd stolen over the weeks hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds from you. And you confront me. And I put my hands up and I admit it. And I say, fair cop, it's me. But before you get too upset about this, you need to understand something. I'm a Christian. And so I know I shouldn't steal. 
And I want you to know, every night when I go home, I get on my knees and I say, Dear Heavenly Father, would you please forgive me for stealing from my employer? And before you get too mad, just, 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 just hold on for a moment, I want you to know this. Because I'm a Christian, I support my church financially with a proportion of the money that I steal from you. How would you respond? Would you say, oh God bless you, that's awesome. No, there's a word for that and it starts with an H. What's the word? Hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite. It's like I'm playing some kind of game here. I'm pretending to be something I'm not. I've got this little deal worked out that's very convenient where I think me and God are cool. Uh, Me and God are cool because I've got a little prayer thing all worked out in private. In the meantime, I'm ripping you off. I'm a hypocrite. Now here's the hardest part of this talk. I'll try and get by it as quickly as I can. If you have got this little routine worked out with God, where He convicts you, where He challenges you, where He puts the finger on something in your life, and you confess to Him in private, and nothing ever changes. You you kind of think God's going, yep, you're forgiven. Your sin bucket is empty. Go fill it up all over again. You've got this whole thing going on, By your own definition, if the roles were reversed, you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite because you're trying to spin confession in such a way that you feel better without ever doing anything to change your behavior. But genuine confession leads to genuine change. You stop lying, you stop swearing you stop gossiping. You you let go of your unforgiveness and your bitterness and your resentment and your hurt. If there's a habit that is secret, no one knows anything about it, you tell someone who can help you. You confess to the person that you have robbed and you pay them back. You apologize to the person that you've injured or hurt and you take steps to practically bless them in some way. Do you see? You need to move past just feeling challenged, just being convicted to genuine repentance and reconciliation and restitution. There needs to be some kind of life change going on. You take steps to put things right, to pay back, to restore, to mend. Why are you thinking, okay, you're right. I am so busted. I mean, I've got these secrets going on. Uh, I've got this little routine all worked out. How did you know about it? I I mean, I I know it's wrong, and I've told God it's wrong, and I thought maybe I could at least get a little bit of credit with him because at least I'm admitting it, but if truth be told, I'm never going to change. I mean, that is completely and utterly unrealistic. I was way too costly. It's never going to happen. And I'd perhaps be thinking the same. And I certainly wouldn't have had the nerve or the courage to preach this sermon if it wasn't for the stunning truth that's staring at us from this passage here in Luke 19. Remember what we saw in verse 5. 
Jesus takes the initiative in reaching out to Zacchaeus. He offers him love. He gives him acceptance. He offers forgiveness and friendship while Zacchaeus was still a sinner. He hadn't changed a bit at that point. And it's as a result of this encounter with Jesus that Zacchaeus begins to undergo this deep transformation in his life. Listen, this isn't a message about working harder and doing lots more stuff to try and earn salvation or get into God's good books or scrape your way into heaven. And I'm certainly not wanting to fall into the trap of preaching yet another sermon that simply challenges or convicts or makes you feel condemned or bad about yourself. The whole point of this message is that the only effective way to stop self-medicating with alcohol, to stop the affair, to stop lashing out at others in anger, to stop looking at porn, to stop the compulsive lying, to let go of that deep-rooted self-pity or hurt or greed, is to let Jesus into your life to respond to his invitation to you, to receive into your life his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness, to experience his love and his acceptance, to see Jesus for who he really is. I tell you, knowing you ought to change is never going to be a big enough motivation. Simply feeling guilty isn't ever quite going to cut it. A challenging sermon certainly won't do it. But a genuine encounter with Jesus most certainly will. Zacchaeus was amazed that Jesus would love him at the cost of his own reputation. That moved him and that changed him. You need to know that Jesus didn't simply love you at the cost of his reputation. He loved you at the cost of his own life. He didn't just bear the disdain of the crowd. He bore death from the crowd. They killed him. And on the cross, he bore the judgment that we deserve from God for all the ways in which we have wronged the one who created us and all the ways in which we have wronged the people around us. Now think about it. If the knowledge of Jesus' costly love changed Zacchaeus, how much more should we be changed? When you see Jesus saying, I am coming to you, I am willingly choosing to do this for you, that you, you haven't changed it. You're still my enemy. You are still against me. You're corrupt, but I'm taking the initiative. I'm taking the first step. I'm doing it for you first. I'm loving you first. And you respond to that in the same way that Zacchaeus does in this passage with joy and arms open wide. Then there's going to be this profound, deep-rooted, lasting change in your life. Not to earn love, 
but because you know you are loved. Not because you ought to, but because you suddenly want to. Not to try and earn salvation, but because you have assurance that you are accepted, you're forgiven, you're cherished by your heavenly Father. So here's my appeal to you. Please, do not let this be yet another sermon that merely challenges you, but ultimately leaves you no different than you were before you heard it. What are you actually going to do as a result of this? What does the application look like for you in your situation? And whatever it is, won't you start by looking at Jesus? Consider his love for you. Receive his grace, his mercy, his acceptance, his forgiveness. Won't you invite him into your home? Won't you encounter him afresh? Because really, that's the only thing that will provide the lasting motivation to see genuine change.